Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 47, The Trial of the King, Part 2. In the last episode, we examined the initial debates of the King's trial. Should Louis be tried? Could he even be tried? Was a trial even necessary? These and others were some of the questions which vexed the deputies as they grappled with everything from constitutional protections to whether the king's guilt was so evident that no trial was needed at all. This episode will focus on the dramatic twist that the trial experienced at the end of December, when Girondin deputies came forth to advocate for clemency and a national referendum to determine the king's fate. We'll be exploring the many competing theories as to what motivated the Girondins as they seemingly pursued any option to prevent the king's death. We'll also unpack the ideological positions of both the Girondins and the Montagnards as it relates to direct democracy. That will set us up nicely for part three on the king's trial, which will focus on the conviction and sentencing of the former monarch. And for patrons with early access, part three is waiting for you right now. But before we get into it, I have a special announcement. Episode 50 is coming up, and to celebrate the milestone, I am officially planning to do a Q&A episode. So, if you have any questions or queries about the revolution, please send them in. Anything up until and including the King's Trial is fair game, so if you have any questions, now is the time. Also, patrons of the show, do keep your eyes out for some exciting announcements and videos in the next couple of weeks, as there's a few collaborations in the works for early next year, and I want your ideas. Also, I do have a surprise up my sleeve for episode 50. I like to think of it as talkback radio meets history podcasting meets Louis XVI's trial, so stay tuned for some opportunities around that as well. Of course, a special thank you to everyone who has been helping to share the podcast with friends and family, promote the show on social media, or done anything else to support Grey History. This is only possible thanks to the support of the community, so thank you so much for helping to keep the podcast on the air. Speaking of support, one of the best ways to help the show is by joining the community on Patreon. For as little as $2 a future episode, you'll gain access to an ad-free feed, hours and hours of exclusive bonus content, and a range of other unique opportunities and perks. At the price of half a cup of coffee, it's absolutely great value, and it means you're doing your part to help ensure that history is being explored in a way that isn't black and white. So please, support the show right now on Patreon. A warm welcome to the newest patrons of the show, including the new Virtuous Citizens, Sean, Omkar and Peter. Also, another warm welcome to the newest true revolutionaries, Stefan, Kent, Monica, Lance and Jonathan, who all got access to this episode a couple weeks early thanks to being on the true revolutionary tier. 
In fact, they already have access to the fantastic episode 49, The Trial of the King Part 3. As always, a special call out to the amazing champions of the people, Cynthia, George, Brady, Tim, Mark, William, Laura and Daniel. Finally, thank you so much to the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy and Charles. Anyway, that's enough from me. So Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays and let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History, Episode 47, The Trial of the King, Part 2. The King was innocent. That was the simple and direct assertion of Louis XVI and his lawyers on the 26th of December, 1792. Through a mixture of constitutional protections, the actions and responsibilities of others, and just good old-fashioned innocence, the defence claimed plainly that the monarch had nothing to answer for. Through their rebuttal of the charges against Louis, they sought to cast doubt not only on the crimes he was accused of, but also the trial's legitimacy and the Convention's authority. The King's trial was misguided at best, unconstitutional and illegal at worst. But unfortunately for the King and his representatives, he was no longer sovereign. He was not in a position to determine what was right and what was wrong. It was the Convention, a constitutional convention, that would decide matters of legality and validity, and it had no doubts as to the constitutionality of its own actions. Only one question remained. Did the deputies doubt the innocence of the king? With the defence coming to a close, some legislators were keen to just get on with it. The nation had no shortage of problems, and the king's trial had both delayed justice as well as the resolution of other, more pressing issues. These deputies pushed for an immediate vote on the king's guilt, with an equally swift punishment likely to follow. Others, however, were less eager. Keen to demonstrate a methodical and even-handed trial, some saw no need to rush what would no doubt be a monumental decision with significant consequences. They argued that time was required to debate the king's guilt. Time was required to determine the king's punishment. But it's here, in the wake of the king's appearance in front of the convention, that the trial experienced yet another dramatic turn in events. With royalist sympathies on the rise, leading Girondin deputies came forth with an unusual proposal. A controversial one, as well. According to these Girondin deputies, the convention should no longer determine the fate of the king. Instead, it should be determined by the people themselves. What these deputies were proposing was essentially a national referendum, in which all eligible voters would vote if the king should be executed or imprisoned. 
This proposal was dubbed the appeal to the people, and the reasoning for placing the fate of the king in the hands of the voters was as follows. The convention had already voted that the primary assemblies would need to ratify the final constitution. That was the only way to ensure that the work of the convention reflected the general will, and that the deputies were not acting in a manner contrary to the will of the people. Using the same arguments, the people should therefore have the final say on the king. The convention could recommend a course of action, but such an action was only legitimate if the people sanctioned it themselves. Furthermore, if the people rejected the eventual constitution, another could always be proposed. But if executing the king was against the will of the people, that would be a little more difficult to remedy. Editing some text? No problem. Reattaching the king's head? A tad more problematic. So, on the 27th of December, multiple Girondin deputies came forth to argue for this appeal to the people. Each Girondin who was in favour had their own take on the reasoning just discussed, but the general gist of it can be found in the following quote of the Girondin orator Venue. Venue, referencing the inviolability clause which protected the king in the constitution of 1791, proclaimed to his fellow deputies as follows. Any act emanating from the representatives of the people is an attack on its sovereignty if it is not subject to the people's formal and tacit ratification. Only the people who promised Louis inviolability can declare that it wishes to employ the right to punish that it had renounced. So, according to many Girondins, the people needed to vote on Louis's fate. Logistically, however, what the Girondins were proposing was no small task. This meant that tens of thousands of primary assemblies across the nation needed to be assembled, and only after a national vote could the issue be settled for good. Well, at least in theory. As opponents would point out, a close outcome or a disputed vote could very well prolong the issue further. For example, could you imagine what would happen if the king's life was determined by controversial mail-in voting in just a handful of departments? The uproar that would arise if unattended drop boxes in urban areas sealed the fate of the king. Think of the banners showing a broken guillotine with the motto, Stop the Steal, spelt S-T-E-A-L. The extent of the potential chaos is just so hard to imagine. Anyway, I digress. The point here is that this proposed resolution may fail to resolve anything for long. Now, to say that this proposed appeal to the people was rage-inducing to the Montagnard deputies of the convention is a severe understatement. Deputy after deputy denounced the Girondin referendum as nothing more than a delay tactic, one which would endanger the Republic, risk Louis escaping justice, and potentially hurl the nation towards civil war. Leading the charge against his rivals in attacking the appeal to the people was none other than Robespierre himself. The arguments employed by both Robespierre and his associates were numerous. Firstly, they stated that the people had already determined the king's guilt, as demonstrated by the overthrow of the monarchy on the 10th of August. Secondly, they warned that such a proposal delegitimized the convention, 
fostered civil war, and ultimately could unleash a series of events that might overthrow the Republic itself. Thirdly, they proclaimed that the appeal to the people was contrary to the basic principles of representative government, and that the Girondins' radical and hypocritical promotion of direct democracy was merely done for their own self-interests. In fact, according to the Montagnard talking points, the proposed referendum was nothing more than the work of ambitious turncoats, the schemes of a criminal faction who were truly the enemies of the people and allies of aristocrats. Furthermore, as royalist sympathies became more vocal across the country in January, the Montagnards took these disturbances as additional proof that an appeal to the people would result in civil war. In short, leading Montagnard deputies and their allies in Paris and beyond unreservedly denounced the proposal and used it to further their allegations that the Girondins were secretly champions of royalism. In a speech on the day that the appeal was proposed, the increasingly notable Saint-Just slammed the proposal. Defenders of the king, what would you require of us? If he is innocent, the nation is guilty. We must respond in full, for the form of the question accuses the people. I have heard talk of an appeal to the people, of the verdict which the people itself will pronounce through our mouth. Citizens, if you permit an appeal to the people, you will be saying to them, the guilt of your murderer is in doubt. Do you not see that such an appeal would tend to divide the people and the legislature, would tend to weaken representation, to restore monarchy, to destroy liberty? And if, through intrigue, your verdict should be altered, I ask you, gentlemen, if you would be left with any course but to renounce the Republic and to lead the tyrant back to his place. For there is but a small step from indulgence to the triumph of the king and thence to the triumph of monarchy. So, according to the Mountain, the proposed referendum was a terrible idea. In questioning the king's guilt, one questioned the revolution's legitimacy. Any vote would divide the nation, weaken the government, and ultimately destroy liberty through the restoration of the monarchy. The appeal to the people could not be allowed to occur. The Girondins were prepared for this opposition, and sought to use the hostility of the mountain to discredit its own image as the champions of the people. The former Parisian mayor Petion, now firmly aligned with the Girondins, denounced the hypocrisy of his opponents. To Petion, to argue that the nation should not be consulted was disgraceful. He asked simply what right the mountain had to override the people's will. He suggested that perhaps they were afraid that it differed from their own, with the implication that the Girondins were the true champions of the people's wishes. The Girondin deputy Gessonet also went on the attack, arguing that the mountain had corrupted popular sovereignty, that they had usurped the people's rights, and that the only way to remain faithful to the will of the people was to allow that will to be expressed in a national referendum. The Girondins claimed that it was an insult to suggest that the appeal to the people would result in civil war, and they denounced the Montagnards for their lack of faith in the people, and the implication that the nation was full of reactionaries. 
Furthermore, while the proposed vote was logistically challenging, it was no more challenging than the national elections that had just taken place to nominate the deputies to the convention. In fact, it was debatably easier now that Prussian and Austrian forces had been driven out of French territory. However, before we arrive at the outcome of this incredibly vicious debate, one which of course was fueled by the factional conflicts and personal feuds of the previous few months, I do want to take the time to note the rather ironic ideological positions of this struggle. I also want to unpack some of the possible motivations of the Girondin faction for this sudden embrace of direct democracy. These two topics will be the focus of the rest of this episode. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. From an ideological perspective, the Girondins had definitely changed their tune in their sudden embrace of a national referendum. Brousseau and his allies had always championed universal male suffrage. They had always loathed the distinction between active and passive citizens. But they had not always been supporters of citizens voting on individual issues. If you stretch your memory, all the way back to episode 17, Rivals for Power, you may recall that Brousseau was once a prominent player in the municipal government of Paris. From mid-1789, Brousseau played a key role in developing the policies of the city, fighting the more centrist tendencies of Mayor Bailly on one side, as well as the more radical tendencies of a few districts on the other. Thus, well before his election to the Legislative Assembly in late 1791, Brousseau had actively worked to shape the institutions and elections of Paris, and while doing so, he sternly rejected direct democracy. Seeking to suppress the unruly districts of Paris, he had helped to introduce the reforms of mid-1790, which replaced Paris's 60 districts with 48 sections. Likewise, efforts were taken against the ability for local assemblies to recall and replace their representatives to the commune, or force those representatives to vote certain ways on particular issues. Fast forwarding the clock, and during the final months of the legislative assembly, which the Girondins dominated, leading Girondins had attacked Parisian sections for trying to influence or intimidate the national body. Importantly, they also repudiated the idea that the sections had any authority when it came to determining constitutional matters, such as whether or not the monarch should be dethroned. So, the result of all of this is that many Girondins were now arguing for a position 
that they themselves had long argued against. They had consistently resisted direct democracy. They had continually tried to limit the authority of local assemblies. And now they were advocating on their behalf. It's for this reason that historian Peter McPhee notes that the Girondins were on shaky ground, given their history of suspicion towards popular democracy. Likewise, historian Timothy Tackett notes that Brousseau had previously opposed the idea of an appeal to the people, arguing as recently as October 1792 that such a referendum would result in chaos and anarchy. So, less than three months later, some leading Girondins, including Brousseau, had done a 180-degree turn. Well, sort of they had done an inconsistent 180, the kind I'm prone to doing thanks to a complete lack of balance and coordination. Now, why inconsistent 180, I hear you ask? Well, just as they were arguing that the people should vote on the king's fate, on the 6th of January 1793, the Girondins attempted to end the permanence of the sectional assemblies in Paris. If you recall, The sectional assemblies had been in permanent session since late July 1792, as the bodies prepared for the Prussian advance on the capital and perhaps more importantly, the coming overthrow of the crown. These assemblies, along with the Montagnat-aligned Paris Commune, were a key source of popular actions and represented a stronghold for Jacobin ideology. So, while the Girondins were arguing that the primary assemblies across the nation needed to be consulted on the matter of the king's fate. They were simultaneously arguing that the Parisian assemblies were the instigators of revolutionary disorder and attempting to put them back in their box. As I said, an inconsistent 180. Thus, on the issue of greater popular participation, the ever-verbose Girondins were talking out of both sides of their mouth. The contemporary journalist Malay Dupin noted that it was typically Girondin policy to temper popular power through representative government, and their attempts to end the permanence of the Parisian sections demonstrates clearly that the recent converts to direct democracy hadn't quite shed all of their old beliefs. But to highlight just the contradictions of the Girondins would be to tell half a story. The Montagnards, while more ideologically consistent, were also speaking a less familiar tongue. Many leading Montagnards had championed the power of the city's sectional assemblies and the cause of direct democracy more broadly. In fact, members of this faction, as well as other political organisations generally supportive of the mountain, had been at the forefront of direct democracy for years. As early as November 1789, the Cadelier district was championing the issue of direct democracy, demanding that their representatives to the commune be bound by votes in their local assembly, and insisting on the right to recall and replace representatives. That's right, that occurred in November 1789, a full three years before the events we're discussing now. Furthermore, it was the Cordelier Club, which was created just a few months later as a result of the district's suppression in mid-1790, that was the stomping ground of revolutionary giants such as Danton and Marat. Indeed, Danton and his associate Demolard 
preached the merits of direct democracy as they battled with the National Assembly over not only the issue of active and passive citizens, but the form of French democracy more broadly. And yet here, on this issue, many who were now aligned with the mountain abandoned any support for direct democracy and embraced representative democracy instead. It's for this reason that historian John Dolberg Acton notes that the proposed referendum was consistent with direct democracy, which until this point in time had been a Jacobin theory. Now to be clear, I'm not comparing apples with apples here. The Girondins are definitely more in a contradictory knot than the Montagnards. But it is interesting how many members of both factions shifted their positions to varying degrees in order to help them pursue their immediate political objectives. And that's a theme we're going to be talking about regularly. Speaking of objectives, before we discuss the outcome of the King's trial, I want to touch on what the hell could be possibly motivating these calls for an appeal to the people in the first place. How was it that Brousseau, who had recently argued against a referendum, saying that it would cause anarchy and chaos, and who once marched at the vanguard of French republicanism, came around to support such a controversial and seemingly royalist proposal? How was it that the Girondins, which had so savagely menaced the court in 1792, were now championing the appeal to the people at the start of 1793? One explanation of this behaviour is simply that Robespierre was right, that the accusations of the Montagnards held true, and that the Girondins were secretly royalists. As discussed in the last episode, even prior to the commencement of the trial, the Girondins had been tarnished with the brush of royalism. Accusations flew that they were secretly collaborating with the court in the weeks before its downfall, an opposition to policies such as the immediate dethronement of the king and the establishment of a revolutionary tribunal merely heightened suspicions. In combination with Montagnard attacks which denounced them as representing the elites and the aristocrats, the Girondins were increasingly portrayed by their opponents as royalist sympathisers, self-serving politicians eager to do business with anyone to further their lust for money and power. If that meant saving the traitorous king, so be it. If that meant bringing back the monarchy, so be it. In fact, according to the radical journalist Hebert, the Girondins were even prepared to install themselves as regents for the young heir to the throne, securing the power of both their own criminal faction as well as the court. Given these accusations, it was argued that the support for the appeal to the people was simply due to their secret royalism, and that they clearly intended to use the referendum as a means to save the king. In saving Louis, they would also save themselves by ensuring the defeat of the mountain, the suppression of revolutionary Paris, and their dominance of any subsequent counter-revolutionary government. Put simply, according to their enemies, the Girondins represented the elites, and they were willing to save the king if it ensured that they remained the preeminent power of the revolution. As arguing directly for the king's life was deemed impractical and imprudent, the appeal to the people was the manner in which they could legitimise the same outcome 
while using the protection of the people's will to betray those same people. Now, while many believed this line of reasoning at the time, I find this explanation wanting, as do many historians. Some scholars do find this proposition convincing, but they are often those who ideologically have a bone to pick with the Girondins and align much closer with the Montagnards. It's not surprising that a historian sympathetic to the mountain agrees with the mountain's accusations. However, even this doesn't always hold true. For example, historian Eric Hazen is a French historian and also a proponent of communism. Generally, he is quite sympathetic to the Montagnard cause, and yet here he utterly rejects this explanation of the Girondins' motivations. In fact, he sternly asserts that the Girondins were not inclined to royalism in any way, shape or form. His words, not mine. And then he states plainly that everything shows them to have been sincerely Republican. Given the fact that Hazen generally doesn't have much nice to say about Brousseau and his allies, in fact he's usually criticising the Girondins pretty firmly, it's a telling remark from a historian who aligns much closer with the Girondins' opponents. I tend to agree with this assessment, that many high-profile Girondins were sincerely Republican. They may not have spearheaded the insurrection of 10 August, they may have only suspended rather than dethroned the king in its aftermath, but since the flight to Varennes, and in some cases well before then, many leading Girondins pursued Republican interests with passion and sincerity. In fact, many had done so before Marat, and especially before Robespierre, whose adoption of republicanism was rather late compared to many of his associates in the mountain. Now, to expand a little bit further, it is possible, potentially even likely, that many Girondins would have been willing to settle for a constitutional monarchy if it functioned like a republic. This is especially so if such a situation would have allowed them to pursue their own political objectives. In fact, some Girondins had said as much. If you recall, the Girondin journalist and deputy Carrar had rather foolishly suggested that the Duke of Brunswick be placed on the throne immediately before the respected general issued his infamous manifesto and proceeded to lead the Prussian and Austrian armies into France. But, even if some Girondins were willing to set aside a republic in pursuit of their broader goals, I would point out two things. Firstly, those goals would still have been republican in nature. Perhaps republican institutions masked with the trappings of monarchy. They might have been willing to settle for a king, but he wouldn't wield any real power. Secondly, I have a sneaky suspicion that the same holds true for many deputies in the convention more broadly, including those associated with both the plain and the mountain. After all, keep in mind that Napoleon's empire will be supported by both regicides and republicans. Pragmatism and republicanism could create strange outcomes, and while the Girondins might have been willing to collaborate with the monarch if the situation required it, I personally believe that accusations of secret royalism go too far for a faction which had a long history of promoting the Republican cause. So, we ask again, if secret royalism isn't the explanation, 
what the hell could be motivating the Girondins' efforts to seemingly try to save the king. There's a few alternative explanations, and it should come as no surprise to you that none of them are agreed upon by historians. As we shall see, part of the reason that scholars cannot agree on the motivation of the Girondins probably has something to do with the fact that the Girondins couldn't even agree amongst themselves on what to do with the king. I know what you're thinking. How can I get access to more grey history? Well, I have the answer. Support the show on Patreon to receive exclusive access to tons of bonus content. There's five bonus episodes covering everything from the Corsican Revolution to science during the Revolutionary Era, and there's also dozens of episode extras. Every regular episode is accompanied by an episode extra, and you're really missing out if you're not listening to them along the way. Some of those episode extras cover specific topics, like the legalisation of divorce in 1792, while others include deleted scenes or my unscripted thoughts on the happenings of the main narrative. For as little as $2 per regular episode, you can support the show and gain access to tons of great content. You'll also have the chance to participate in the show, select upcoming topics, and potentially gain access to the next episode ahead of everyone else. Don't forget that the next episode on The King's Trial is already available for those on the True Revolutionary tier and above. So support Grey History today and sign up for the amazing value that is being part of the show's community. There's links in the show notes, on the website, or just Google Grey History Patreon. Now back to the show. Another possible motivation as to the Girondin efforts to mitigate the King's punishment can be found in arguments that arose during the debates in the convention. A line of reasoning pursued by Brousseau was that the convention should be wary of the potentially disastrous impact the king's execution would have on the war effort. Brousseau warned his colleagues that Louis's death could incense all of Europe against them. At the moment, the French were at war with Prussia, Austria and a few smaller European states. They were not at war with the British. They were not at war with the Spanish, nor the Dutch, nor the Swedes, nor the Russians. But that could change. Brousseau and some Girondins argued that the king's execution would compel other monarchies to get off the sidelines, expanding the war and possibly resulting in tremendous troubles for the fledgling republic. Furthermore, it would remove a possible hostage to be used as a bargaining chip in future negotiations with the coalition powers. However, this line of reasoning has its critics. The Marxist historian George Lefebvre rebuffs this position with a short and sweet summary. In it, Lefebvre points out two things. Firstly, that Brousseau's reasoning might have been a great justification for not having a trial in the first place but hardly supported arguments that the guilty shouldn't be treated as such now that the trial had commenced. Secondly, it was the Girondins who had consistently advocated for war, not only against Austria and Prussia, but against kings and queens more broadly. To now warn of further conflict seemed like another inconsistent Girondin 180. Relating to Brousseau's warnings that the king's execution would bring new powers into the conflict, Lefebvre writes, 
This was a telling argument for avoiding the trial in the first place, but was no longer valid. Besides, it seemed to represent quibbling from the Girondins, who in November had demanded war to the finish. Another historian who attacks this line of reasoning from the Girondins is historian Peter Kropotkin. Now, it's true to say that Kropotkin, as an anarcho-communist, is not exactly a big fan of the property rights-loving Girondins. No prizes as to why. But Kropotkin brutally savages the Girondins for this line of reasoning, arguing that such logic was completely wrong. Essentially, Kropotkin argues that Louis' potential execution had no impact on whether or not a larger coalition would form against revolutionary France. As a result, Rousseau's claims that executing the king would increase the likelihood of foreign intervention was both foolish and misguided. Furthermore, it's hard to take the Girondins seriously in their warnings for expanding the war effort when they were the war party. It was they who were the faction who proclaimed the need for a crusade of universal liberty. It was they who championed the creation of sister republics in Naples and Poland. To warn against expanding the war seemed incoherent to say the least, when just months ago they were talking about toppling not one, not two, but all the thrones of Europe and beyond. Kropotkin writes, The Girondins, who had themselves most eagerly clamoured for the war and advocated war to the bitter end and against all Europe, began now to plead the effect which would be produced on Europe by the king's execution. As if England, Prussia, Austria and Sardinia had waited for the death of Louis XVI to make their coalition. As if the Democratic Republic was not sufficiently odious to them. As if the allurement of the great commercial ports of France and her colonies and provinces in the east were not enough to bring the kings in coalition against France, so that they might profit by the moment when the birth of a new society had weakened his powers of military resistance outside his own territory. So, one argument as to why the Girondins were perhaps trying to save the king was the fact that they felt that sparing his life was good foreign policy. A prisoner king could be used as a hostage, could be exchanged and traded, whereas a dead king could simply invite more enemies across the fields of France. It's a line of reasoning that many historians condemn as inconsistent with previous policies. Some denounce it as misguided given the incompatibility of the revolution's values and those of traditional Europe. But as numerous as these criticisms may be, that doesn't mean it wasn't a genuine motivating factor for some Girondins. It doesn't mean that some of these actors didn't genuinely believe that sparing the king, keeping him as a card to be played when the time was right, wasn't good policy. Interestingly, however, there were a few Girondin deputies who openly repudiated this line of reasoning from Brousseau, reminding us that the Girondins were never a homogenous group and cannot be thought of as one unified bloc. For these dissenting Girondins, the Republic's enemies were seeking to save monarchy, not a specific monarch, and a still-breathing Louis XVI was hardly the valuable hostage 
some of their associates were making him out to be. Another possible motivating factor for the Girondins is a fear of Louis's power. Not alive, but dead. Some Girondins feared that Louis could be a greater enemy as a martyr, as a symbol, than as a prisoner locked up in a tower. Claude Bowers, who was not a trained historian, but nonetheless wrote many popular histories and was an American ambassador for almost 20 years, wrote extensively on the Girondin deputy Vernieu. Vernieu was a respected and capable orator, famed for his speeches in both the Legislative Assembly and the Convention, and we have heard from him semi-regularly in the last couple dozen episodes, really since the cries for war escalated. In fact, besides Brousseau, he's probably the most quoted Girondin on the podcast. As I said, a respected and capable orator. Now, according to Bowers, Vernieu believed in this argument that the king would represent a significant threat as a martyr, and writes as follows. Louis seemed to Vernieu what in reality he was, a rather weak and pitiful person of no real importance who could be more dangerous as a martyr than as a prisoner or an exile. Continuing this theme, it appears that such fears were common amongst some Girondins. Historian Jonathan Israel notes that many deputies feared the possibility of creating a martyr for the counter-revolution, and the Girondin deputy, Raboul Saint-Étienne, went as far as to proclaim that Louis dead would be more dangerous to the people's freedom than Louis living in prison. In a reversal from Samuel Jackson's most iconic Star Wars scene, the monarch was supposedly too dangerous to be killed, rather than too dangerous to be left alive. Stepping back for a moment, this is not an argument that I find particularly convincing, but it was nonetheless a reason that was used by some who favoured banishment or imprisonment. Now, so far we've covered three possible factors explaining the motivations of some Girondins in seeking to spare the king from the blade of the guillotine. Firstly, secret royalism. Secondly, concerns for expanding the war. And finally, the power and dangers of martyrdom. It's here that I must reveal that while all three of these explanations were certainly given a lot of airtime by the revolutionaries themselves, I find the sum of these explanations lacking. Yes, I think all have merits to varying degrees, but taken collectively, I still feel that something is missing. Why is this the case? Well, let's recap. Firstly, I don't think the majority of Girondins were secret royalists. It's beyond doubt that some were happy to collaborate with the court when required, especially when pursuing their own political objectives. But I don't think that the majority of Girondins, elected after the 10th of August, had much love for either the institution of monarchy nor Louis XVI personally. Likewise, concerns for the war effort could be a valid explanation for the Girondins seeking to spare the king's life. As a general rule, a living hostage is better than a dead one. But such a position is a speedy turnaround for a group which historically had a seemingly insatiable appetite for revolutionary war and has never really demonstrated the ability to devise realistic war aims in the first place. In November, 
they were declaring war on every king and queen. They were talking about sister republics in Naples and Poland. And one month later, we're meant to believe that they not only had a change of heart, but since concluded that such an expansion of the war should be avoided at all costs? Just thinking about it gives me whiplash. Now, I do have a possible theory which stretches this traditional justification just a little bit, but I think it makes it more believable, and I'll cover that reinterpretation of this reasoning in the episode extra for this episode. Hint, it's not to do with the European conflict, but potentially one in the Atlantic. Finally, I can see some sort of argument that Louis, a rather incompetent leader, might actually be safer in chains than in a coffin, especially if that prevents a capable leader from rising in his stead. But the heir to the throne is young and sickly, and even at the time, it's not like anyone would accuse the king's brothers of competency. Furthermore, while the institution of monarchy could inspire some, the monarch himself was a pretty uninspiring individual. So once again, I'm kind of looking for a way to rationalise the line of reasoning that Louis' martyrdom posed an existential threat to the Republic. Thus, with three possible motivations in, motivations that the revolutionaries themselves spent an awful lot of time talking about, and I'm left wanting. We have yet to find a series of explanations that either individually or collectively get me to say, yeah, I think that explains it or at least explains a reasonable proportion of the sudden effort by leading Girondins to seemingly attempt to save the king's life through an appeal to the people. So, this brings me to two final theories as to the Girondins' motivations, theories which I find a little more compelling. The French socialist leader Jean Jaurès, famously assassinated on the eve of World War I, offers an interesting interpretation of the Girondins' motivations for attempting to prevent Louis' death. In fact, he offers two. Firstly, Jerez essentially states that the Girondins realised that if the king was executed, they could very well be next. If a monarch could be sent to the scaffold, then a deputy could easily follow. Given the rising instances of popular violence, Given the ascendancy of the mountain in the capital, given the fact that Brousseau and Roland narrowly survived the September massacres, at least according to them, this development of deputies sharing the fate of the king was not improbable. In fact, given everything that had happened until now, the unrest, the agitation, the September massacres, hell, it looked likely. Furthermore, Jean Jaurès notes the impact of the death of the former foreign minister Delassare, who we briefly met back in episode 26. Brousseau had played a leading role in running Delassare out of office in March 1792 for his efforts to prevent conflict with Austria. Denounced as a traitor in league with the enemy, Delassare had subsequently been imprisoned, and he had been killed as a result of a prison massacre inspired by the events of September. So, historian Jean Jaurès asserts that Delassar's death not only weighed on the conscience of Brousseau, but reinforced this fear amongst the Girondin leadership that if Louis was executed, their heads could be next. Here is historian Jean Jaurès, as translated by Patreon and friend of the show, Xavier. 
and a tremendous thank you to Xavier for making this quote possible. Historian Jean Jaurès on the Girondins. And then, I don't know if a sort of melancholic pity was not awakened in them by the fist wounds of life. Certainly, they were not afraid for themselves. They had great courage, and besides, if their prestige began to be affected, their power was not yet ruined, and their life was not threatened. But they had suffered. They had experienced the harsh vicissitudes of public opinion, even for a moment in the days of September, when Robespierre and his friends at the Commune denounced Brousseau, when a warrant for arrest was prepared against Roland, they had seen a flash of the axe shine upon them. How fragile everything human was, how short popularity was, how precarious life was. Thus, sometimes, in rapid and secret melancholy, the tragic mystery of their destiny bowed to the tragic mystery of the royal destiny. Their thoughts met on the threshold of nothingness, royalty abolished, and the king threatened. And, like shadows touching at the edges, the destiny of the Gironde sometimes seemed contiguous to the destiny of the king. Were the Girondins really sure, by striking, they were not striking themselves? They were giving to death an ambiguous signal that death itself might interpret broadly. Some conscious problems were also with them. I imagine that Brousseau, who was good and humane, had not learned without pain that Delassar had been massacred at Orléans. It was he who had sent him to the High Court. It was he who, on very slight hints and to hasten the declaration of war, had him declared a traitor. Was he really a traitor? The bloody shadow must doubtless have bothered Brousseau. So, according to historian Jean Jaurès, one explanation for the Girondins' defence of the king, for their eagerness to try to spare his life through an appeal to the people, is that they were unsure that by striking the king, they weren't also striking themselves. A prospect which I suspect dwelt on the minds of many, and would certainly give one pause before going further. This prospect is indirectly linked to the last possible motivation that I want to explore, one that can be summed up simply with one word, realpolitik. For those unfamiliar with the word, the more technical definition of realpolitik is a system of politics or principles based on practical rather than moral or ideological considerations. A slightly more casual definition would be an approach to politics which de-emphasises ideology and morality in favour of pursuing realistic goals which deliver practical and tangible results. And it's along this theme of pragmatic politics that many historians find the motivations of some Girondins. After months of bitter factional fighting and venomous denunciations, it is proposed by some that the Girondins could not simply accept the execution of the king, given the fact that the mountain had rallied so strongly and so vocally in favour of the issue. Given the advocacy for execution by the likes of Robespierre and other Montagnard leaders, to follow the mountain's lead would be to do just that. Follow the mountain's lead. Historian Henry Packwood Adams claims that the Girondins 
were essentially forced into a position of advocating against execution, as to advocate for the king's death would make them look like they were tamely following their opponents. It would cost them their prestige, their power, their preeminence. The whole nation would witness their submission to the mountain. Such actions, at least according to Adams, would cost the Girondins their position as the leading faction of France. Historian Jean Jaurès reaches a similar conclusion and argues that the Girondins were not so much concerned with saving the king, but overwhelming the mountain, Robespierre, and all their factional opponents. In short, some historians argue that it was the necessity of party politics which drove the debate, which motivated the Girondins to oppose the mountain and their calls for the king's blood. It was not necessarily, or at least not primarily, a desire to save the king, but rather a desire to secure their own position and power. Historian Heinrich von Siebel notes simply, It was no longer a question of truth or feeling, but of power and forces ready to do battle. Sharing similar sentiments is historian John Dolberg Acton, who wrote, The truth is that nobody had a doubt as to guilt. Punishment was a question rather of policy than of justice. The Girondin biographer Claude Bowers echoes a similar line and expresses the view that had a single faction dominated the convention, had such considerable conflict between the Girondins and Montagnards not previously occurred, the trial of the king may well have developed quite differently. It is probable that had any one party had supreme power, Louis would have been spared. But with the struggle between the mountain and the Girondins becoming one of extermination, with the militant masses clamouring for Louis's blood, it would have been suicidal for any party to have appeared openly against his death. Louis had become the pawn of party politics. The parties were manoeuvring for advantage in the matter of the king's trial. While I'm far from convinced that Louis would have been spared had the mountain maintained supreme power, Bauer's observations are nonetheless intriguing. Many historians share the sentiments that party politics, political manoeuvres, realpolitik, played a critical role in influencing the decision of many Girondins. Their efforts to seek alternatives to the convention determining the king's punishment and likely execution may not have been efforts to save the king, but rather themselves, both literally and politically. So why did the Girondins adopt the appeal to the people? Well, there's no easy answer. We just heard five possibilities. Historians bitterly disagree over all of them, and you shouldn't be surprised to hear that there are more theories and more variations on the ones that we've already discussed. In fact, I'm going to explore another in the episode extra for this episode. Of course, what complicates things here is that we're not talking about the motivations of any one individual, we're talking about an entire faction, a group of loosely tied deputies whose connections are sometimes so ambiguous that some historians reject the word faction as too strong a word, 
because it implies too strong an association between the representatives in question. Each individual deputy had varying attitudes and motivations. This is not one unified party, nor one homogenous voting bloc, which makes explaining the motivations of these deputies all the more difficult. However, if there's one thing I want you to take away from all of this, it's that the motivations of the Girondins to try to spare the king are complicated, they are multifaceted, and they cannot be boiled down to simple answers such as secret royalism or a desire to prevent the war from escalating. To put it simply, it's grey history. The fact of the matter is that motivations were numerous, complex, interconnected, and varied from person to person. Just like the motivations of politicians and political organisations in our own times. Thank you for listening to episode 47, The Trial of the King, part 2. Part 3 focuses on the King's conviction and sentencing, and the next episode is already available for patrons on the True Revolutionary tier and above. So, support the show on Patreon and sink your teeth into that, as well as hours of exclusive bonus content. Speaking of hours of bonus content, the episode extra for this episode will be further analysis on some potential motivations for the Girondins as they suddenly embraced clemency and the appeal to the people. Hint, one potential reason has to do with the Atlantic. A reminder to send in any questions or queries you may have for episode 50, and patrons keep an eye out for some exciting announcements and opportunities in the next couple weeks. As always, thank you so much to everyone who has been helping to support the show in some way, shape or form. And as always, as the holiday season approaches this year, don't forget to recommend the show to friends and family. Thank you to all the patrons of the podcast, including the newest patrons and the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy and Charles. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Merry Christmas. Enjoy your holidays and have a great day.